0: Hello and welcome to The Bunker Daily. I am your host, Alexandreou. As someone who grew up in Greece, a country with an unhappy Ottoman past and complicated geopolitical present, I have to work actively to counteract the emotive imagery that even a mere mention of Islam evokes. Breaking away from tropes is not easy, when I have been, in a way, radicalised by easy binaries – by a culture, a region, a history, an entire people, reduced to a painting of a swarthy, be-turbaned Turk with a curved sword slaughtering women and babes in my primary school history book. The antidote? To seek, to read, to understand, to reflect, and to use the brighter light of others, more educated than me, to dispel my own shadows. In that endeavour, a short history of Islamic thought by the historian Fitzroy Morrissey has been a valuable addition to my library. And I have the very man with me today. Welcome, Fitzroy Morrissey.
1: Hello, Alex. Thanks very much for that very kind introduction.
0: Fitz, you begin interestingly by answering what I always ask as my first question, which is why this book? And I find one of the reasons genuinely fascinating. You make the argument rarely heard. That Islamic thought is intrinsically important for anyone interested in the history of ideas. Why is this obvious point so rarely made?
1: Thanks. Well, I'm, I'm glad that you picked up on that point because that's really the primary reason for writing this book. For me, at least, I mean, I've studied Islam and Islamic thought for over ten years, and over that time, I've developed you know profound fascination enthusiasm respect for the various facets of the Islamic intellectual tradition and you know in writing this book one of the kind of main goals really was to try and share some of that enthusiasm and sense of excitement with readers and to get them to to see that this is really important stuff in the global history of ideas that you know if one is to have an informed opinion on intellectual history one needs to know about the medieval Islamic philosophical tradition, about Sufism, uh, about Islamic theology.
0: It's an ambitious book in that it really is short, just under 250 pages, and quite clearly intended as a sort of, let's say, a readable primer. Is that a fair description, an introduction, albeit a pretty comprehensive one?
1: That's fair. I mean, I tried to make the book accessible to all to to a number of different kinds of reader. Mm. I suppose my ideal reader is someone who has like yourself perhaps a general awareness of an interest in Islam and Islamic culture, perhaps on account of their personal background, perhaps because of the multicultural multi faith environment in which we we find ourselves, many of us find ourselves. An interest in history, perhaps in, in contemporary politics, but wants to kind of understand some of the backstory, the intellectual context in which present debates might be undertaken.
0: Do you worry that in your area of study and in writing this book, you're treading a, a sensitive area where a mistake or something that could be misinterpreted can land you in trouble of a kind that's not really present in other fields
1: yes i think when one's writing about religious ideas ideas which you know govern people's ways of thinking about the world govern their lives one wants to be as uh, you know careful and as sympathetic as possible i kind of self-consciously adopted a quite detached and mm. you know non-partisan mm. approach because i wanted to to give as far as I could, and I know this is a, an ideal to aim for rather than something which is completely achievable, but to to give a, as far as possible an, an objective and fair account, which is based on sources, yes. primary sources in Arabic and Persian. Um, and, and so, yes...
0: I apologize in advance in this interview for y- even using the term Islam because it's you know if one if I got one thing from your book it's that it's really not a monolithic
1: thing. Yeah no I think if if you know if there is a thesis which you know as you say I haven't written it with a particular thesis in mind but I think if there is one it's that you know Islam can't be reduced to one particular set of ideas or values and that the history of Islamic thought has been defined by diversity, by competition, interaction between different intellectual trends.
0: But because I want to address some Western perceptions of mm-hmm. Islam, then, you know, necessarily I'm going to use that shorthand. As of course, yeah. So Islam has a reputation for being maybe more aggressively proselytizing than other religions. Is that true? Is that fair?
1: Well, I think, like Christianity, Islam is a universal religion—a religion which the Quran at least presents itself as a message which is relevant to all of humanity. And I think that, you know, across the various tendencies and and schools and of affiliation, there's a common idea that Islam is the final, perfect, complete religion for humanity, and mm. as such, the world would be better off; people would be better off if. People accepted the message of the Quran and, and of Islam. In terms of proselytization, the principle of what's called Arabic dawah, calling people to Islam, is is certainly an important one throughout Islamic history. I think the general consensus of scholarship is that certainly from the medieval period onwards, the ways in which Islam was spread throughout the world across you know the the wider Middle East and into India and Southeast Asia, it was often brought by traveling mystics, Sufis, traders. And so it wasn't really imposed by force of arms, as as the the kind of Western stereotype might sometimes have it. And there's also, there's a principle, at least vis-a-vis Christianity and, and Judaism, the Jewish and Christian communities under Muslim rule, there's a principle of tolerance and of, Allowing those communities to continue to practice their religion within a kind of hierarchical framework, where their you know subordinate status is recognised, but they're still allowed to practice their religion.
0: You're right. I think at some point that it was important to demonstrate that existing religions had been superseded, Mm -hmm. and that's what triggered this thought in my head on whether the root of that perhaps undeserved, more aggressive reputation, is the fact that Islam is a relative newcomer, I guess, in the, you know, on the big monotheistic religion scene, Mm -hmm. if you want, and has faced a a more hostile reception from the start because it was competing in what one might flippantly describe as an already crowded market. Is there something Mm -hmm. to that?
1: I think so, yeah. I, I mean, one of the interesting to me at least, aspects of Islamic intellectual history is the fact that Islam, the Quran, presents itself as a continuation and a confirmation, and as you say, a supersession of Hmm. the earlier dispensations of of the earlier scriptures that were given to the prophets, which are are recognized in Judaism and, and Christianity. So there's this sense in which, I mean, the Quran says Say, Muhammad, I am nothing new among the messengers, or you know, nothing has been revealed to you which is, was not given to any of the prophets before you. The idea that Muhammad has not brought anything new, but his task is the task of Islam is to correct mistakes which had crept into mm-hmm. the earlier monotheistic religions. And so, you know, once those mistakes have been rectified, the idea is that you know one doesn't actually need those earlier religious, you know, those earlier scriptures or, or, or religious laws, because religion has been perfected.
0: It markets itself as a sort of definitive version of something. Yeah. Another thing that I sort of knew, but hadn't emerged as clearly, until I read the book was the fact that Islam actively reaches into spheres of politics, law, and even economics it's very much a system of rules that applies to the material now as much as what may come after or the spiritual now how big a source of conflict is that with western secularism
1: yeah i think this is you know this is an important question and it gets into you know quite difficult territory so i think you're right in so far as traditionally the sharia the religious law was understood to cover you know a whole range of different areas of life from what we might think of as the you know the specifically religious the ritual areas for instance how to pray fraught to questions of you know socio political issues economics this is certainly found in in writings on islamic law from the medieval period what you get then in the modern period is the rise of of what's known as Islamism, political Islam, which really overemphasizes, one might say, this this dimension to the point where Islam is presented as a political ideology above all else. So instead of being a kind of having a family resemblance to Judaism and Christianity and being a competitor of those two religions, the family resemblance is now to communism or capitalism or fascism, and Islam is presented as the, the solution to the problems faced by people in the in the modern world. So that's where you really get this really direct head-on clash with secular ideas, and that you know there there are clashes between Muslim secularists and and Islamists. That's where this 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 conflict really comes to a head.
0: And of course, from that emerges the idea of a caliphate. And I do sometimes wonder whether much of Western suspicion is. Centered around the notion that there, there is such an explicit end goal, as it were, uh, is that a fair anxiety? Do you think
1: one sees this in in Islamist discourse? Certainly, the idea of the caliphate—it's an ideal. So after Muhammad died, I mean, ca- caliphate literally means uh, the caliph is a successor, Khalifa yep. um, in Arabic, and according to kind of the mainstream Sunni view. After Muhammad dies, he's succeeded by four rightly guided caliphs: uh, Abu Bakr, Omar, Uthman, and Ali. And so this becomes, in in Sunni thought at least, a kind of a golden age in which things were you know, as they as they should be, and these rightly guided caliphs are held up as models. Hmm. And so that there's this kind of recurring sense of you know the the desire to get back to this golden period. However, quite quickly the caliphate loses its religious authority and then the caliphate itself begins to fragment in terms of its uh, political reach throughout the, the Muslim world. So the, so mm-hmm. one gets in the ninth and 10th centuries, uh, the Abbasid caliphate ruling from Baghdad begins to fragment and, and one gets the um, appearance of various local dynasties. And then in Sunni Islam, this situation, this this new status quo is is essentially rationalized. And there is a very important principle in in Sunni Islam, where a perennial desire, in a sense, is to avoid what's called fitna, discord, anarchy, anything which is going to uh, upset the equilibrium of society. And so acquiescence to whatever dynasty or ruler happens to be in power, as long as they allow Islam to be practiced is accepted. And so I say mm. this is the kind of mainstream Islamic view. And that's where one, one sees a divergence in Islamism, where no longer is there an acquiescence to the particular ruling power of the day. Um, one sees this most clearly in Sayed Qutb, who's very famous, um, important radical Islamist thinker in Egypt in, in the mid 20th century, who you know, essentially declares that the Nasser regime in in Egypt non-Muslim, um, yeah, a non-muslim
0: a secular
1: secular exactly and yeah. therefore says that it is valid to actually seek to overthrow it
0: i was reading a an, an interesting piece recently by uh, professor Jasmine Giovanni, um who sort of assessed thousands of stories about young Muslim people primarily in the Canadian mainstream media. And she was talking about Michel Foucault's Orientalist categorization of people as savages or barbarians. The difference, the pertinent difference being that savages can be tamed and converted, but barbarians are irrational and have hostile intent. Are we still effectively struggling with that orientalist vision of Islam when we talk about um you know people who migrate to a, a country like the UK needing to adapt to our rules, are we effectively saying that there are segments of Islam which are savages and segments of Islam which are barbarian as it were? With a relentless focus on radicalization and, and terrorism narratives. Yeah, I mean, I think
1: you know one of the, the things that my book is trying to do is to you know show that there is this whole wealth of other rich tradition of intellectual thought in Islam, and I think I'm by no means the first writer historian who's who's tried to do this, and I think there's there's also been a very long tradition in Western scholarship and and. European thinking, which is, you know, more open and receptive to Islam, Islamic culture.
0: I guess what I'm asking is, you know, from your book, it seemed clear to me that modernist strands of Islam and of Islamic thought are really very healthy and vibrant and on the rise, if anything. So how do we make space for those stories?
1: yeah that's you know it's it's a very important point as you know i try to show the modernist movement as it were which essentially sees islam as an essentially modern religion in fact you know the the religion of modernity par excellence as a religion of reason and of you know openness to science and modern values you know that has a has a long pedigree you know it really goes back at least to the to the mid 19th century one sees it emerge in India with someone like Saeed Ahmed Khan and in Egypt with Mohammed Abdu. And really, even though their ideas are are very controversial at the time, I would say, in a way, their modernist thinking has prevailed to a great extent over the vast majority of Muslim thought. In terms of, you know, how to make it more central, I think, you know, these Voices, obviously, these these perspectives aren't perhaps so headline grabbing as as the Islamist ones. And you know, hopefully, by writing about them, I've I've done a tiny bit to um to get people to to see beyond those those kind of headlines.
0: I'm curious. I'm I'm not setting any kind of trap for you here. Are you religious? Yes, I am. Yeah. And what religion do you observe? If you don't, uh,
1: I'm a Christian. You know, I think it's a good, a very good question personally you know i'm i'm not of the view that well obviously i'm not of the view that you know one has to subscribe to the particular belief system that one's writing about in order to understand it but i do think having a kind of sensitivity to a religious perspective can help in terms of adopting a kind of empathetic and um you know trying to see things through the eyes of believers one of the kind of striking things i find is that you know some of my heroes in terms of western scholars of islam i mentioned in in the book the beginning of the book marshall hodgson who mm,
0: hodgson. was a great
1: um it features
0: his, very prominently. i'd say yeah he
1: i mean he was a great historian of islam at the university of chicago sadly died very young and he you know he was very open about this in his in his work his, his magnum opus is the called the venture of islam a three-volume history of islam he was a a professing quaker and this really one can see this really come out quite prominently in his in his writing on islam you know this idea of the universal divine light pervading mm-hmm. all peoples it's also true of um, you know ma- many great scholars of islam have been of jewish background
0: the reason i'm asking is 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 not because i don't think there is space for all of this but simply because i think a person of that faith will write differently about that faith. A person mm. of no faith will write differently about that faith. And a person of a different faith, again, will write differently about it.
1: You know, hopefully it, you know, it does have a value insofar as it allows one to, to give a kind of different perspective. And, and you know, hopefully Muslim readers will, will find that valuable or refreshing even. I mean, for instance, take an example Wilfred Campbell Smith, who was a he was a Presbyterian minister at and and a Scott great scholar of religion and Islam at, at McGill University in Canada, he made this very important point, which I think his kind of Christian background allowed him to see that often one thinks, you know, the the kind of analogy is between Muhammad and, and Jesus, you know, in in Christianity and Islam, but actually the correct analogy is between Jesus as the Word of God in Christianity and, and the Quran, and that actually the kind of relationship that a Muslim will have with the Quran, as the Living Word of God, is is very similar to to that which mm. a, which a professing Christian might have. So I think that kind of insight, you know, is is potentially valuable. And I like a kind of comparative framework because I think it allows us to to kind of narrow our, and, and sharpen our perspective on different philosophies or, or religious systems.
0: Yes, I think different. People can act as access bridges to different groups of other people. Fitzroy Morrissey, thank you so much for your time. I could chat about this for ages. Thank you.
1: No, thanks so much.
0: A Short History of Islamic Thought is out now. Remember, there's a new Bunker Daily on Wednesday, Thursday and Sunday mornings. Your Start the Week supplement on Mondays, your Culture supplement on Saturday and a longer weekly full panel episode every Tuesday. So don't forget to subscribe, review and rate us. You can also support us on the funding platform Patreon. Just search for Bunker Podcast Patreon. This is Alex in the Bunker saying over and out.
1: The Bunker Daily was presented by Alexandre. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Jelena Sofranievich. The audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.